What you missed on Prime Time with Clarissa Montero on Money FM 89.3. My guest, thankfully, is already in the studio. Nicholas Fung, former national fencer and current managing director of Black Dot Communications Consultancy and executive director at the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. He left his life as a journalist here at The Straits Times after nine years before he started Black Dot. And he took on a role as executive director in the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. He was also an NMP, which leads me to wonder, what are you, a workaholic or something? Well, uh, hi, Clarissa. Thanks very much for having me. I, I don't actually see any coffee here, so that's a bit of a misnomer. We, we, can, we can arrange coffee, but I don't think... It, well, that depends. Whether uh, you think Catherine can make good coffee. Well, she can bring a really good can of coffee, I suspect. Thanks very much. But to answer your question, I guess uh, one of the key things uh, in my life is that I have a, have a difficulty saying no when people uh, invite me to do stuff. And I think that uh, it's a great opportunity when people uh, still see value in you and offer you opportunities. So uh, I I'm a compulsive uh, yes-sayer, I guess, when it comes to taking on new roles. And I've been really lucky because most of the stuff that I've uh, been involved in, I'm I'm actually really interested in and really passionate about. So uh, I have to say I've been very, very lucky to be given all these opportunities. And uh, if you're still young enough, you have energy and people want to, you know, uh, get you to do stuff, who are we to say no? Okay, that's a great answer. And, you know, in short, yes, you kind of are. Either a workaholic or you're, you just find it impossible to say no, and co- or the combination of the two. A combination of the two. I do enjoy work, and I do enjoy meaningful work, and uh, uh, I think some of the stuff that I've been involved in, whether it's communications, media, international affairs, uh, giving back a little bit, serving uh, as a nominated MP, mm-hmm. I think those were, those were really good opportunities. And we, I constantly have opportunities to learn uh, more things about uh, different industries, different segments of society. Uh, and if I'm able to, to add value and to give back a little bit, I think it's, it's it's been great. So uh, I'm not doing so much these days, still doing a couple of different things, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, trying to get more sleep as well. Let's go right to the beginning. Former fencer, how does a Singaporean become a fencer? It's not really in our culture. Well, it's actually getting much more popular in Singapore. I think uh, you guys will see in the news, our our young fencers are doing very well mm-hmm. on the world stage, mm-hmm. not just, uh, you know, regionally. But in my time, uh, you know, winning a medal at the SEA Games was, was like the pinnacle of, of sporting achievement as well. So uh, I, when I was younger, I always used to like watching The Three Musketeers, you know, Zorro, those kind of, okay, I'm dating myself a little bit, but um, swashbuckling type shows. Uh, and there's always a certain uh, sort of romanticism associated with, uh, with you know, fencing and sword fighting and stuff like that. Uh, and I was lucky enough, uh, I, I actually went to SGI, to St. Joseph's Institution, and they were one of the two schools at the time that had fencing. Uh, but the fencing club was full. Mm-hmm. at that stage so mm-hmm. I ended up joining uh, becoming a librarian uh, I then went to uh, Raffles Junior College as it was known in those days and they were the second school that had fencing so right. I managed to start learning then um, and I have a, a little bit of a height advantage long arm long legs and the coach was, was quite happy to have me even though I was a little bit old when it comes to athletes taking up uh, high level sport uh, I was 16 at that stage mm-hmm. uh, nowadays most of the kids start when they're 5 or 6 years old uh, but luckily I, I was doing okay uh, made it to the national team after a couple of years and and then you sort of took off from there. Okay, so from National Fencer, then you joined Straits Times. I'm trying to connect the dots here. Uh, well, that was they're not really related, uh, although you can say that you know it could be a sword fight every day in the newsroom. Uh, isn't um, it? Well, I don't know. It depends <laughs> on the newsroom, I think. Uh, but I, I'd also, also been very passionate about uh, journalism. Were, mm. When I was younger, like really, really young, when kids were trying to decide what they wanted to be when they grew up, uh, I was quite pregnant. I don't know. I, I didn't want to be a fireman or anything like that, but I did want to be either a lawyer, journalist, or a, a veterinarian because I really like, you know, 
know, animals. That's not the normal kid. three choices. Yeah, a little bit different. Well, lawyer, yes, but veterinarian or journalist, not yeah. really on, I don't on really the radar know. for most parents. Well, I like I like languages. Mm-hmm. I like reading. I like writing. So I guess there's a little bit, uh, you know, sort of association with that. Okay. Um, but then I, I, when I was sort of exploring and I attended a few law classes at university when my friends were who were there, uh, were, in, were in law school there and I realised, wow, they really have to study a lot of stuff. Uh, and then I thought, hmm, maybe that's a little bit trickier. Uh, and then at the same time, um, you know, when I looked at the animal pet scene in Singapore, we don't have agriculture. Our zoo is, is just the one, uh, one zoo operation. And uh, being a vet, maybe they potentially didn't have a lot of scope as well. Um, but then in 1993, when the, when the Sea Games were in Singapore, I actually signed up to be like a cub reporter. That's what they still used to call uh, interns in those days. Right. Uh, cheap labor, basically. Uh, with the Straits Times Sports Desk. Mm-hmm. And for those two weeks, uh, we covered sports news. Uh, we were able to write articles. And I realized that I really enjoyed the environment. Uh, those were the days when we were still in uh, Times House at uh, right. Kim Seng Road. Yeah, that's right. A little bit old school. Uh, You're you know, dating yourself now for sure. I think there's no, there's no choice but to do that. Uh, and I realized that that's something I was very passionate about because you could uh, get to know uh, different people each day. You would mm-hmm. basically have the license to go up to a complete stranger and say, tell me about your business, about your life, about your passion, about what you want to do. Uh, and uh, and then you go back and you write about it. And I, 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 I can write quite fast, I guess. So that, that helped a little bit. Um, and then SPH was kind enough to, to give me a scholarship to go and study in university. And mm-hmm. I was happy to come back and, and start a career here. Okay, we are talking to Nicholas Fang, former national fencer, and former journalist here at The Straits Times, current Managing Director of Black Dot Communications Consultancy and Executive Director at the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. Okay, we've covered fencing and journalism. How do you go from... What, were the, what was your beat in uh, journalism? Uh, I was at uh, ST for nine years. Mm-hmm. So I was seven years with the Money Desk okay. and two years at the Sports Desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a column Which for first? life. Sports or money? Money first. Money uh, first. Business first, yeah. Uh, and then I wrote a column for Life for a while. And then when Stomp first started, mm-hmm. you know, it's still as a vehicle to integrate uh, Straits Times, online, mobile and print, which is what sure. Stomp, no, not many people realise that's what Stomp actually starts uh, stands for. Uh, and I was one of the, they had like a team of bloggers who would write stuff each week and have a live chat, you know, on, on the website. This is really old school stuff. And it was still when blogging was like cutting edge, you know, It was cutting stuff. edge, yes, exactly. Uh, so I, was, I, was, I had a lot of opportunities. And then when Straits Times ventured on TV, there was mm-hmm. like STTV and Channel I, Channel U, mm-hmm, News and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So uh, we became like this amphibious reporters who would do, you know, TV stuff, we write stuff for the website, and then we'd do the print stories as well. So that right. was one of the uh, pioneering efforts at this kind of um, a cross-skilled type of journalism. And that was really interesting. And I think uh, uh, it really gave me an opportunity to explore a little bit about all different facets of journalism. Uh, and I think it made me even more passionate about communications and uh, the media and, you know, narrative development and storytelling, which kind of led to, to what I'm doing now with the communications consultancy. Actually, I, I was about to say that I can see the connection and, and it's quite an easy flow from being a journalist, especially if it was Money Desk going into consultancy, communication consultancy. But where does the NMP part of it come into play? Ah, okay, well, that was quite interesting. In 2012, uh, the sort of opportunity came up uh, well, in how, Parliament. How, what is an opportunity to become an NMP? How does this opportunity arise? Well, basically, it's a, it's a nomination. So you're not elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're nominated 
dominated sort of by a particular community that you mm. are close to. And I think uh, the, the parliamentary system in Singapore allows for people who come from certain sectors uh, to step forward if they want to and if the, if the community feels that they're representative uh, to, then, to then submit the name and become nominated uh, uh, to take up an MP position in right. parliament. Uh, and while you don't have a constituency per se that you represent, you have subject uh, areas, interest areas that you're then supposed to, to uh, represent. Uh, and I think the aim was basically to have a more diverse uh, sort of conversation in Parliament. Uh, if you have purely just elected MPs, obviously they have responsibility to their constituents. Uh, a lot of the issues that they champion uh, can be very diverse, but majority will be focused on their constituency, sure. municipal issues and things like that. So uh, I went in to, to talk about issues surrounding sport. Uh, which obviously doesn't get a lot of airtime mm-hmm. in the national conversation. Uh, defense, security, I'm quite interested in that. International affairs as well. And of course, media. Uh, so I guess having, you know, uh, like a multi-purpose tool like that, they were part of the select committee in parliament was like, okay, you know, it's quite useful. Uh, one bird, four stones, you know, four, four, uh, one stone, four birds. Uh, right. uh, and it worked out uh, to be a very interesting experience because obviously um, in, in the years since 2012, 2011, 2012 onwards, uh, we've seen a shift in the national conversation. We've seen new issues cropping up when it comes to security and stuff like that. So uh, it was it was a great opportunity to to see the debate and the discourse on that at uh, the parliamentary level, mm-hmm. uh, and also to have, to obviously contribute a little bit to that conversation. Okay, we're going to take a little bit of a, di- a diversion here since you were talking about sport. A big uh, issue right now, online and elsewhere, is trying to save Farrah Park. Mm. Now, I, I do understand development and, and all that, but I also understand the side of the question where, where they're saying we need to, to maintain it, we need to keep it because it's got historical relevance. Where do you stand on that? Well, I, I certainly hear where that's coming from. I started out as a swimmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first sport that I really got involved in and my, my mom and my, my, my dad sort of said, okay, you know, typical Singapore parent style, you need to learn how to swim mm-hmm. and then obviously evolve into a bit more competitive uh, element. Uh, I, I didn't progress very far, but that's where my sports roots are. And I have a lot of friends, you know, uh, Uncle Ping Siong used to be one of my coaches. Uncle Ping Siong? Yeah. This, you this, sure you're young enough to call him Uncle Don't Bluff? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I'm not from his generation, in case anybody is wondering. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's one of those things that I we do have a very strong sporting heritage in Singapore. I'm mm-hmm. not sure many people, you know, Singapore sporting excellence didn't begin with Joseph schooling, uh, although that was a really, really a major milestone. Uh, and I think that if we lose some of our memories and some of our history and the younger generation don't understand or remember, that's that's sad in, in any sector, not just sports. Yeah. Um, but we do have a lot of history and a lot of different stories. And whether it resides in a physical structure, mm-hmm. uh, do we have to keep the physical structure there? Can we have a, sort of a monument to it? Can we have a, a museum or something that, that sort of consolidates uh, some of these memories? A Hall of Fame, we do have it, but you know, do, can we have a physical Hall of Fame? Can we have a sports museum for Singapore uh, where these stories can be, can be kept? Uh, I think culture, history, legacy can be maintained in a lot of different forms. It would be, of course, ideal if the physical structure could be there so people could walk through and actually see uh, some of these uh, memories. But if the necessity and the reality of a, of a land-scarce country like Singapore means that we, we can't keep everything, uh, they should, we should look at other ways. So we will see progress, we'll see some of these developments, but as long as people realise that we have to do something to preserve the memories, I think uh, that, that won't be too bad. If we just forget about it completely, yeah. then obviously that's, that's not ideal. Well, perhaps that is what some people are afraid of if we tear down Farrah Park, we, all the memories associated with it, all the 
you know, all, all the people who came up through that part might be forgotten because there is no other place where they are remembered, where they are immortalized in some way, shape or form. Um, I agree with you. We are very land scarce and that is a constant battle. But we, I think we do have to remember. I'll, I'll, I'll share a story with you, a very quick one. I'm a big fan of Ang Peng Siong. I, I screamed myself hoarse when he was swimming, right? When it was the first time any Singaporean, I think, really truly believed we could win an Olympic gold was Ang Peng Siong. But my kids, who are millennial strawberries or whatever you want to call them, had no idea who he was. And they thought Joseph Schooling was the first time that Singapore ever came close to winning a medal. That's, this is before he actually did. Taking nothing away from Joseph, I think it's an amazing achievement. I think Singaporeans, especially our younger generation, shouldn't forget that the journey didn't begin with Joseph. It began a long time ago. It began before Ang Peng Siong. Yeah. And in one way, shape or form, we have to get that in our school books is how I feel. That's true. So that's one way to do it is through education, through uh, building a bit stronger sports culture. That's one of the things I, I pushed very hard for when mm -hmm. I was in, in parliament as well was that we need to have a conversation about sports culture, uh, our legacy, our history, the roots that we are based on and what is the ethos of Singapore athletes. You know, right. what, what, you know So you, you mentioned millennials and strawberry generation and stuff like that. That's cool. But um, we, we do need to know that uh, Singapore athletes have actually achieved quite a lot in the days before we had the Sports Institute, the Sports Hub, before mm -hmm. we had athlete, the spec scholarship with athletes training overseas and stuff, we had people who, who re reached pretty high level. I mean, uh, Uncle Ping Siong was a world record holder for, for a while. Yes. Uh, best in the world, you know, in facilities that were very rudimentary, Farrow yes. Park and places like that. So why can't we uh, have that spirit, you know, that, that sort of can-do spirit, the fact that, yeah, you know, we have the reality. We all know what the shortcomings and the challenges are for, for people living in Singapore fast pace, education being very important and stuff like that. But we can actually we can actually achieve. We have achieved stuff in the past. Uh, so let's not throw our hands in the air and give up. Let's not always worry about not having enough support and resources. And, and let's pull together as a community, support one another and, and go for, to be the best that we can, whether it's Olympic gold, whether it's a Sea Games gold, Asian Games gold. Uh, but we, we should try. Uh, and I think that sort of spirit uh, will make a big uh, uh, difference when it comes to establishing a real sports culture in Singapore. Great. We are talking to Nicholas Fang, former National Fencer, current Managing Director of Black Dot Communications Consultancy and Executive Director at the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. What are you most proud of doing now? Wow. Uh... Most proud of doing well, you know, I... Because you've I, had a very interesting career so far. I, I, I've, nev I've never been really one to sort of sit around and, and think back about, you know, the things that I've done. I think that uh, the moment you start doing that is the moment you stop moving forward. Mm -hmm. You start trying to look back. Uh, there'll be a time and place for that and it's, it's quite far down the road. Uh, but I think one of the things that I'm thinking about more and more these days is about achieving balance. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, too many people these days, uh, there are a lot of you know, Singaporeans and people in general like to complain about how difficult things are. Uh, work is difficult, schedules are difficult, wow, you know, we face all these restrictions and, and this breeds a lot of general sort of unhappiness. Yep. Uh, I'm generally quite a positive uh, person uh, which antagonizes the people around me, my wife, my friends, no end, right? Because uh, I'm always... What are I, you so happy about? Yeah, exactly. Or why are you so positive? Why is everything okay? Why is why is nothing a challenge? Why is everything an opportunity, you know? But I honestly, that's, that's something I've just sort of hung on to. Uh, so it's about balance. I, I truly enjoy the things that I'm doing now. I, I run two companies. I run my own communications company mm -hmm. and I'm, uh, I help my dad run his uh, uh, family business that he's built up since the, day, the year I was born, actually. 
Uh, at the same time, I got married two years ago. Mm. You know, uh, congratulations! Yeah, thank Welcome you. to the club. Thank you. Uh, my wife Julie is a journalist as well, so uh, we we I think being able to balance a family life, having a uh, occasion to spend time with family, mm-hmm. you know, uh, parents, obviously, you know, spending time with them, uh, friends, uh, and at the same time, building a business and build and working on things that I'm passionate about. Uh, I do think that we can have it all. Uh, it requires a little bit of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it requires a little bit of hard work. But if you if you find what you're passionate about and you honestly believe in it, then don't say that, oh, there's only 24 hours in a day. Oh, I'm so tired. You know, everybody's tired. And if, if nothing is, is worth working hard for, then it's probably not w- worth working at at, at all. all, yeah. Um, so I, I, I do take on probably a lot of challenges. People do sort of look at me and say, why do you enjoy taking all these challenges? Uh, I still try to keep active in sports, try to stay healthy. Uh, obviously, we want to build a family in the future. Uh, and, and as a husband, you, you want to spend time with, your, with, my, with my wife and, of course, take care of my, my parents as well. Um, but I do enjoy that and I do sort of approach that philosophy that we, we, why, why should we limit ourselves? Let's try to do, do something. Don't do it at the expense of your health. Don't do it at the expense of friendships or family. And don't tell yourself that I can only do one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people would say, well, if you want to do something really well, you have to focus. Yeah, okay, I take that point as well. But I think we can achieve a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. Uh, and I don't think we should sell ourselves short and say, oh, I should only just do, do the one thing. Uh, so if you ask me what am I, maybe not proud, but what am I happiest about now is that I really do try to, to balance. And it takes a bit of planning, a bit of discipline. You sacrifice some things, but at the same time, I can have a lot of things that I, I honestly believe in and truly care about. So I'm quite happy about that. Okay, cool. Now let's look at the man. Take away all the job titles and all the achievements. What's a, s- a guilty pleasure? Oh, guilty pleasure. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, this is one of those things that I guess uh, uh, we sort of stereotype of a journalist, right? So, you, so uh, you like a good single malt. Well, well see, that's why everybody <laughs> assumes that journalists, journalists are all alcoholic. Um, but actually, I do, I do enjoy uh, a little bit of, of scotch once mm-hmm. in a while. Uh, but I think the biggest guilty pleasure I have, and my, my wife, uh, Julie, will testify to this, is uh, I like books. Uh, books. I, I, I am a compulsive book buyer. Uh, I like physical to read books. Physical books. Okay. Yeah. So I still I, I don't do Kindles. I I struggle to read a lot online. Um, so I buy books. Uh, I don't read as fast as I buy. So then you do, and I end up with piles of books around that have yet to be read. Uh, read. Uh, but I read somewhere recently on I think Medium.com, if I'm not wrong, uh, a, a piece that was saying that people who buy and have a lot of books that they haven't read, uh, it's actually a good thing because when you do that, you remind yourself of the things that you don't know. You're right. buying stuff, obviously, that you're interested in and want to learn about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, okay, you hope, don't just buy it and use it as doorstops and stuff like that. You do aim to read it at some stage. But it's okay to have more more stuff that you haven't read than, than you have uh, because it does remind you that there's a lot of stuff out there that we need to learn about. Uh, and hopefully, it then inspires you to read more and then learn more in the future. So... Um, it sounds like a bit of an excuse for people who like it buying books. It sounds like a justification for people who buy more books than they can read. But yeah, okay, I can get behind that because I feel the same way about books. And I love physical books. And I am one of those people who, uh, if you crack the spine on one of my books, I'm mm. going to hurt you. Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's really my, my big thing. That's not a very guilty pleasure, but, you know, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us, Nicholas Fung, former National Fencer, current Managing Director of Black Dot Communications Consultancy and Executive Director at the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. You're on Money FM 89.3.